You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Sex and relationship advice you can use tonight. Welcome to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. I'm your co-host, Brandon Ware, here with my lovely other half, Dr. Jess. How you doing? I'm all right, man. It's a weird week. We've got the election results dragging out. We've got good weather here in Toronto to the point that it almost felt normal yesterday to sit on a patio and... Yeah, which is unusual too, because we don't normally get t-shirt weather in November. No, but I'll I'll take it. Yeah, so will I. I guess I probably shouldn't if it's bad for the environment, but I did enjoy a moment of normalcy yesterday, sitting on the patio, feeling as though, I don't know, we weren't in the middle of COVID for just a moment. Yeah, it felt really good. First time for me in about seven months where I felt relaxed for a moment. And I remember looking around and the sun was shining. Maybe everything was rosy because the sun was shining. I was in a t-shirt. The weather was comfortable. We were on a patio doing what we normally have done in the past, which we haven't been able to do. You mean day drink? <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> that, that too. Yes. Yeah, it's a, it's a strange time, but it was nice to have that moment where you kind of forgot that the world was imploding. Yeah, it makes me very much look forward to the normalcy that will once again be upon us. Yes, the new normal. Before we dive into today's topic, which is the penis and sexual health and sexual medicine and managing sexual dysfunction with our guest, Dr. Joshua Gonzalez. I want to say thank you to Cleavana for their ongoing support of this program. Folks, be sure to check out cleavana.com. This is sound wave technology that enhances orgasms at the cellular level by treating the clitoris directly, and it's a totally non-invasive, no downtime, no scalpels, no needles, nothing like that. So follow along at Cleavana and check them out at cleavana.com. Now, today we are going to be talking about erections and ejaculation and delayed ejaculation and muted orgasm and all of that fun stuff centering on the penis. So how's your penis doing today? It's doing fine. Thank you for asking. Ah, well, do you think about your penis much? I don't normally think about my penis penis much. I do. uh, Do you? (laughs) At least one of us does. Um, I tend to overthink things when we're having relations. What do you mean? What do you overthink? Uh, When we're having sex, sometimes I get in my own head. I start thinking about work. I start thinking about other things. And then my mind goes down this path occasionally where I start thinking, am I aroused enough? Am I hard enough? Am I this or am I that? And it's just ridiculous. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, But tell me, how do you bring yourself back? Wow, great question. I bring myself back lately by remembering that what I'm thinking isn't relevant to what's happening. So if, for instance, I'm not hard enough, if you finish too soon, none of that is a problem. If I finish too soon or you finish? Well, we both know that if that were to happen, we would just be looking for it to continue, <laughs> finishing again and again, right? Me or you? You. Oh, but you said if I finish too soon. Oh, yeah. No, I'm sorry. I was making reference to myself. Like if I were to finish too soon, in the past, I'd, I'd be concerned that, okay, okay, well, it's like sex is done. But I know now that that's not at all the case. Like you don't need a penis 
to have incredible sex or orgasms or any of those things. Yeah, and you're so, not done till I say we're done. <laughs> no, <just kidding. laughs> but that, but that really is a part of it. It's like just reframing what I thought sex was. So if somebody were to, you know, finish or not be able to start, or in in terms of like getting an erection or whatever, it's like, well, you've got hands, you've got knees, you've got elbows, tongues, noses, you've got all these other things that you can use. But how did you get? over that. And that's that's kind of what we're going to be talking about. How did you get over the pervasive belief that sex is about a hard penis lasting X number of minutes and then ejaculating? Experiencing and having these conversations here. And I'm not just saying listen to this podcast, but for me, having the opportunity to have so many incredible, in like so insight, such insightful guests here just reminding you that sex is not what we've been taught sex is. Like sex is your elbows, the backs of your knees, it's your tongue, your nose. Yeah, it's a penis, it's a, it's a vulva, it's all of these things, but it doesn't have to be what I was taught growing up, which is penis, vagina, v- vulva, you know what I mean? Like that. You were not taught vulva growing up. Why would no, you say that? No, not at all. Well, because I'm trying to use the correct terminology <laughs> now. I'm not talking about what I was taught growing up. When did you first even hear the word vulva? Working working with you or, you know, I remember your days 20 years ago at the Sexual Education Center um, at U of T and your group of friends and the educators that worked there and even at that point being presented with different terminology and I, and I remember not knowing what it is. So it gave me an opportunity to learn. Now, Google wasn't the thing as much then, so I got to ask questions. But It now, was Yahoo It was then. Yahoo. Yeah, it was, <laughs> I'm going to download on Napster or something, right? But, you know, now you don't know something. Before you even need to ask somebody, you can Google it. Yeah, but Google doesn't always bring up accurate responses or inclusive information and that's that's why we have these conversations so joining us today is dr joshua gonzalez md fellowship trained in sexual medicine specializing in the management of sexual dysfunctions throughout his career dr gonzalez has focused on advocating for sexual health and providing improved health care to the lgbtq plus community Thank you so much for joining us. Dr. Josh, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Happy to chat with you. Now, we have been working in tandem, but from afar with Astroglide, and you are Astroglide's sexual health advisor. What do you do in that role? Um, so I you know, uh, provide written blogs every, every month for the website, um, mostly focusing on male sexual health. So we've written some stuff about kind of how to enhance your male sexual performance. Um, I just submitted one on ejaculatory dysfunction, which should be, be published pretty soon. Um, we had one focusing on anal sex. So each month there's kind of a different topic depending on you know, what, um, what we want to bring light to um, from, from the brand perspective. So when you talk about sexual performance, what are you talking about? That's a good question. Um, it's, it's sort of all encompassing. Um, the, the blog that I'm referring to kind of specifically focused a lot on kind of maximizing your erections. Um, and the, the piece that I just finished yesterday was actually supposed to be about erections and ejaculation. I kind of skewed it more towards ejaculation because we covered a lot of the erection stuff um, in that male, you know, enhancing male performance um, blog. But it was, it was 
you know, sort of all encompassing. It kind of talked about the importance of diet and lifestyle um, behaviors and, um, you know, different supplements that have been used and exercise and all, all kinds of things. So um, on how to kind of just holistically approach um, enhancing performance. Dr. Josh, are you finding right now in the midst of everything that's happening in the world, is maintaining an erection something that is more common these days? Like, is that something you're seeing more of? You mean challenges maintaining an erection? Yeah, I'm yeah. sorry. Yes, yes. Um, so I'm definitely seeing a spike in a variety of different sexual um, health issues. Um, libido is a big one. Um, but yeah, erections as well. I mean, people are kind of quarantined with their partners and hopefully they have good relationships with their partners, but not everybody does. And so you're, I'm starting to see, um, you know, people struggle in their relationships sexually in ways that they hadn't before. And then if, you know, you're talking about people who are single, they're feeling very isolated and alone. And so, and, and dating in this environment can be very challenging. And so, um, there's a lot of just anxiety, about everything going on in the world, and then that often is carried into you know romantic and sexual relationships. So I am, I'm definitely seeing an increase. Um, I've been just as busy you know in the past few months as I have been ever. So that makes sense. And now in in this article, because I read the article you're talking about, you talk about eating like your penis depends on it. Because often <laughs> when right. we think about erection, we think about touching it or fantasizing or watching something to get it hard. But your erection is dependent on your day, your lifestyle, your exercise, your diet, your interactions, as much as the technique you use to develop that erection. So when you say eat like your penis depends on it, what should these penises be gobbling up? Um, so as a general rule, I like that, by the way, gobbling, um, <laughs> um, I would say as a general rule, um, we kind of say what, what is good for your heart is good for your penis and it's good for your erection. So, okay. um, and there's actually a, you know, medical literature to support this. There's, it's come out in the last, you know, 10 to 20 years, um, an abundance of literature showing that men are um, much more likely to present with erectile dysfunction as the symptom of undiagnosed cardiovascular disease years before they would necessarily present with something like a heart attack or a stroke. So everything that your doctor has always told you that you should do to maintain a healthy cardiovascular system is true for your penis as well. So that's you know eating a well-balanced diet, and there's some data showing um, more specific diets that can be helpful, things like the Mediterranean-based diet, getting you know um, regular physical activity, watching how much fat you consume, watching your intake of animal proteins, all those sorts of things that, that your doctor says you should do to, to keep your blood pressure healthy and prevent diabetes and keep your cholesterol in check um, are all going to benefit your penis. So um, that's, you know, as a general rule, we say what you're doing for your heart is going to be good for your penis. So you're talking whole grains, fruits, vegetables, legumes, nuts. Nuts are good for your nuts. Olive oil. <laughs> you just you just got all the one-liners today, don't yeah. you? <laughs> I, I like the gobbling penises and the nuts yeah. are good for your nuts. Um, and so, so it's your diet. I, you also say that coffee may play a role. You talk about a 2015 study that found that consumption of caffeine reduces erectile dysfunction or the likelihood of erectile mm -hmm. dysfunction. Um, right. Do you know why like, the theory that underlies this connection? Um, I actually don't know what the the um, the specific mechanism is for that. I mean, coffee is an interesting um, thing that we all you know generally consume, um, and historically, it's really been thought to be sort of detrimental to our health. And there's been a, yeah. a lot of literature that have come out probably 
I would say since like the year 2000 that have shown the benefits um, when drinking in moderate amounts, and this is just one of them. Um, so interestingly enough, I just it, this came to mind because I just wrote about coffee in the piece that I just finished this weekend about ejaculation, and coffee um, can kind of be bad for ejaculation when you're talking about taste. So um, you know you, you, everything in balance. If you're a big coffee drinker, in that in the newest piece I wrote, I, I recommend that you try to you know leave it to one to two cups a day, um, okay. which would also sort of maximize the the benefits from an erection standpoint. So you got to find that that nice balance where you get the benefit for your erections, but you don't want your partner tasting funky spunk. <laughs> fair, fair enough. We got we got all the language going today. <laughs> Uh, and so when we talk about, you know, stronger erections, what are people's other options? So we've got lifestyle factors like reducing stress and sleeping better and eating better. What about in clinic? What what are some of the medical interventions when there are issues with, with erections? You know, people come often right in and say, hey, my erection isn't as strong as it used to be. Right, right. So, I mean, I think one thing um, that makes my practice unique is that I approach um, erectile dysfunction and really any sexual health issue um, from a diagnostic perspective, right? So um, we know that that anxiety and psychological um, uh, factors can contribute to a man's uh, inability to perform. But we also know that there's a certain number of organic reasons that a man can have an erectile problem. So when someone comes to see me for an erection issue, it doesn't matter if he's 25 or 65, he's getting the same workup and it's kind of going through the list of organic causes of ED, and, and those include like hormonal issues. So we do, you know, hormone testing. Um, we do blood flow assessments with something called a penile Doppler, where we actually do a vascular study of a man's penis while he's erect in the office um, to figure out if there's a blood flow issue there. And then once we understand more about which organic causes may be present, then we can kind of come up with solutions for those. Um, and, you know, I, I do my best to kind of try to normalize um, these issues for my patients the, from the first moment I meet them. Um, because the truth is, if you look at the ED literature, only about 15% of men who present with ED have a uh, strictly psychological problem. Um, okay. But that's not what they come in thinking. So I, I would say it's closer to 50% of men that I see come in thinking, well, I think it's all in my head. Um, but that's really not the truth if you look at the literature. So, wow. um, and I tell them, you know, it's if you're a man who um, enjoys sex, is in a relationship that you know it, where they they love their partner and they want to have sex, um, or if they're single and they're just horny and wanted to have sex with multiple people, um, but they're un incapable of performing, that can be incredibly um, frustrating and create anxieties that then can compound whatever physical issues we find. So, you know, I work closely with you know, providers such as yourself to, to kind of help address those anxieties. Um, so it kind of takes a village to kind of treat these issues sometimes. That makes sense. And you work in LGBTQ health. So do you see differences in terms of sexual orientation and expectations or mm -hmm. um, needs or the way they present or the way they describe issues related to erection? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think um, another thing that I try to... Um, figure out when I'm meeting with a patient for the first time is what their goals are, right? So if you're talking about a man who identifies as heterosexual and he's primarily going to be having penovaginal sex, 
then we know we have to get him to what we call a grade four erection, which is you know a perfectly rigid erection. And this is based on um, the erection hardness scale, which was developed during the Viagra trials. It's grade one, two, three, and four, four being sort of the perfect erection. Um, but that was based on a vaginal model um, and based on the pressures that are exerted on the erect penis during vaginal sex. Um, if you're talking about someone who identifies as gay, and maybe engaging in other types of, you know, sexual activity, you know, say anal sex, the pressure exerted on an erect penis from uh, during anal sex is incredibly higher than than from vaginal sex. So, you know, while there are not while there's not an exact metric that applies to um, men who are having sex who are having anal sex, I've sort of modified that erection hardness scale, and I tell guys who are primarily interested in penetrating their partners that we've got to get you to a four plus because the amount of pressure that's going to be exerted on your penis during anal sex is, is higher than what we even associate with being, you know, a, a grade four erection. That makes so much sense. And it's, it's interesting. And of course, not surprising that gay men are left out of the equation in the research, like they don't even register on the scale. Now, of course, gay men can have lots of different set types of sex besides right. penetrated yeah. anal, but there is that piece that exists. And of course, people of all sexual orientations and genders are a little Absolutely. bit interested in anal. You've been writing about anal. Yeah. And one of, one of the pieces you begin with is a reminder that anal sex does not have to be about penetration, right? There's all this other stuff we can do. So can you give us some ideas? I know that's not exactly what you do, but you have expertise in the in the area. Yeah, I mean, I think I wrote that piece um, from the perspective of just, you know, exploration um, and trying to sort of normalize anal sex. As you, as you mentioned, you know, people incorrectly associate anal sex with, um, you know, uh, men who have sex with men essentially. But there are all different types of people that engage in anal play. And so this blog was really meant to try to normalize that and give some, you know, tips on how to engage in that maybe for the first time. Um, and you're absolutely right. It doesn't necessarily involve immediately, you know, penetrating. Um, so, you know, one could engage in, in what's called rimming, um, where you're performing uh, analingus, essentially, um, using your tongue, um, you can certainly use fingers, toys. I mean, there's other there's other types of activities that you can use. You don't necessarily have to insert your penis into someone's anus right off the bat. So, yeah. Yeah, and I've got a rule that you really shouldn't insert your penis into someone else's anus until you've gotten to know your own anus, right? Like you should be able to – now, your penis can't go in your own anus unless you're some sort of <laughs> – I don't know, some sort of puppet mastery going on with the penis. <laughs> but to be able to even yeah. put your finger in your own butt, right, to get to know what it feels like to have those mm -hmm. sphincters around it, to relax, to breathe into it. I think, uh, I wonder if it's less so among gay men than, than straight people. There's this expectation that anal sex will inevitably be painful. Uh, is this something you run into? Absolutely. I think less so in, in the gay world. Um, um... But, you know, I mean, there, there are still gay men that complain of it, about it hurting. And, and I think um, one of the things that I tried to convey in that, that piece that I wrote was there are things that you can do to become better at anal play if that's something that you want to do. Um, often it involves patience. It involves um, a lot of lubrication. It involves um, knowledge of your anatomy. Um, it involves, you know, um, just kind of relaxing and, and doing what feels good and stopping if it, if it doesn't feel good. Um, and having a partner, if, if you're engaging in this kind of stuff with a partner, um, that is understanding and, and is going to go slowly with you if, if it's something that you're trying for the first time. Um, 
So yeah, I, I absolutely would say it, it does not have to hurt and, and it shouldn't hurt. I mean, you don't want to necessarily engage in anal sex if it's painful um, just because you think you have to. Um, you can. There's other ways to have sex um, that, that don't necessarily involve pain. Right. And if we could just see sex as an exploration of pleasure and mm-hmm. not falling into these expectations of, oh, I have to check this box or I must do this because it aligns with what I've been told, you know, fits my gender identity or my sexual orientation. But what feels good, right? Like if it feels exactly. good to suck, to suck on an earlobe, then do it. If it feels good to suck on a toe, then do it. And if it feels good to put a penis in the anus, then then do it (laughs) as long as as long as everyone's enjoying the process. So I do have some questions from listeners that I'd love you to help out out with, if you don't mind. So the first one, this person asks about a penis that curves to the right when erect. Mm -hmm. Uh, They say it has been this way as long as I can remember. I'm a bit self-conscious about this. And I've researched it. I'm wondering what I can do to fix this. I know there is surgery, but that seems a little extreme. Are there any other procedures or therapies that you know may help? And they don't, um, they're not showing any like symptoms or pain or anything like that. Um, so without examining this, this um, person, it would be hard for me to necessarily diagnose him with what I'm going to talk about. But it sounds to me like he has, he may have a condition called Peyronie's disease. Um, and this is where the exam and history become important because there are men who have a certain degree of curvature that is non-pathological. They've had it their whole life. It's never interfered with their ability to penetrate. It, you know, it may be distressing to them psychologically, or they may have encountered a partner who made some offhand comment that kind of made them insecure about it, but it's not necessarily pathological, meaning it doesn't necessarily require intervention. Um, on the other hand, there's a condition called Peyronie's disease, which we mostly think of as acquired. There is a congenital form, but a majority of patients um, develop it at some point later in life. And it is thought of primarily as an accumulation of traumas to the erectile tissue over time. So sometimes that is um, a very clear event. You were having sex, your partner was on top, they came down and your penis buckled and you may have heard a crack or a snap or a pop. um, And then, you know- Nice crispies. Yeah. And then, Sorry. yeah, it's 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 it sounds and and is painful from what I've heard from patients. Um, but you know, shortly thereafter, um, men start to report a change in the appearance of their erect penis. It bends one way. Um, I see a little divot when when I'm erect. Um, my penis seems like it's shorter than it used to be. So so the you start to see a change in the way that your penis looks um, when you're erect, and sometimes it's associated with pain. Um, and in those patients, um, there are treatments for their, their condition, but it, it, it matters what the severity of the issue is. So generally speaking, we um, think of curves greater than 30 degrees to be something that warrants intervention because um, once you get beyond 30 degrees, it can be difficult to penetrate um, your partner if that's the kind of you know sex that you're interested in having. Um, so that's where objective measurements in the office become important because there's only one FDA approved, if you're talking about you know, um, treatment in the US, um, uh, only one FDA approved treatment for this condition is called uh, Zyaflex. And it's an injection that you um, administer directly into the area of scarring. But before you can do that, um, you have to make sure that you do a formal measurement in the office and that that person is greater than 30 degrees and that they have an area of scarring that you can feel so that you can administer the injection properly. You know, surgery 
was the, the mainstay of therapy prior to the advent of Zyaflex. But Zyaflex has been around for God, I, probably 10, year, 10 years now. Um, so that has really replaced surgery as sort of a first-line therapy for men with, with Peyronie's disease. Um, there's other things that have been used off-label for years prior to the advent of Zyaflex um, that also involve injecting the penis. Um, but that's, that's really the only FDA-approved treatment at this time. And so are some people just concerned about the curve from the aesthetic perspective because maybe penises in porn, the penises that they see don't curve as much. And so we get, I mean, all of us, we're so self-conscious about our bodies. Absolutely. And, you know, there's, you know, markets exist in order to sell us things to fix problems that don't exist. Uh, so I imagine it's the same thing with penises. Do you find that people come in and nothing is wrong sometimes? They're just a little bit self-conscious? Yes, absolutely. And so that's where this particular person who wrote in, I would be interested to see, is is his curvature truly something that we would consider congenital Peyronie's, or is it just curvature within normal limits that he's been, you know, somewhat insecure about for whatever reason for most of his life? Um, and that's the really interesting thing about Peyronie's disease is that it's a disease, it's a functional problem, but there's a, a certain degree of distress that is associated with it. So there are some men who develop and have true Peyronie's disease. They may have a curve that's 25 degrees. Maybe they don't quite meet that cutoff. Um, that are incredibly bothered by it. There are other men who I've seen who have 45, 50 degree bends. Maybe they're not having sex with their partner. Or maybe, or maybe they're doing other, you know, non-penetrative sex. Maybe they're having other types of of, inter, of, um, of sexual intimacy. And it's not a big deal for them. And so um, it's, it, it's when considering treatments, you have to consider both the severity of the deformity and also the degree of distress. And those are not always, you can't look at a curve and predict this amount of anxiety um, because they're not always correlated. That makes sense. And, you know, another person asked about Peyronie's disease. They say, uh, I, had pen I had a penile I don't know what this says. I think it means surgery. I had penile surgery because of Peyronie's disease. Mm -hmm. My penis lost some girth and length after surgery. My wife and I still have intercourse, but the head of the penis is soft, so the sensitivity is not the same. Uh, do you know if there's a procedure that we can do to make the head of the penis hard? So there isn't a, a procedure that I'm aware of that can um, make the penis hard. It, there is a condition called soft glands, um, which is what it sounds like this person may have. Um, interestingly, um, one thing that people don't appreciate is the blood flow to the head of the penis is actually separate from the blood flow to the shaft. So a man can have a normal erection, like a rigid shaft, but the head of his penis can be soft. And that's because the blood flow from, to the head of the penis comes from the urethra. Um, so there are, um, some medications that we can prescribe, uh, usually have to be compounded that you can insert into the urethra urethral opening um, that are vasoactive, so they dilate the blood vessels. Um, so some of my patients who have soft glands, I've tried those medications with them, and essentially they're just gels that they um, insert into their urethral opening prior to sexual activity, and it dilates the blood flow to the head of their penis, and that can help increase sensitivity and rigidity of the head. Are rigidity and sensitivity correlated? So the harder you are, the more sensitive you are, or not necessarily? Generally speaking, um, the more engorged and rigid your penis is, um, the more sensitive it is. However, there are a variety of different things that can affect sensitivity. So um, with this particular person's surgery, I don't know what, what 
exactly occurred during the surgery, but um, the nerve, the nerves that innervate the penis run along alongside the, the top. And sometimes those nerves have to be moved out of the way um, to do these kinds of uh, Peyronie surgeries. So it may have interfered with normal, you know, um, nerve input to the head of the penis. Um, that may be possibly why he, he has been experiencing this, you know, post-surgery. Um, and there are other conditions, things like um, diabetes, for instance, which is known to cause peripheral neuropathy. So um, a diabetic may have completely healthy blood flow to the penis. He may be able to get erect, but his sensitivity can be completely abnormal um, if he has, um, you know, uncontrolled or long-standing diabetes. Okay, and I have another question that relates to sensitivity. So you're leading into all of these. This person says, my boyfriend has very little feeling in his penis when we engage in sex, vaginal and oral. He has the most sensitivity in his penis when we first start, but as we continue, the feeling in his penis begins to fade until eventually he doesn't really feel anything at all. Uh, it doesn't affect his erection, but his as his penis loses feeling, obviously, and this happens when he masturbates as well, he generally can't have an orgasm or ejaculate. So, so they say if he finishes kind of quickly, then we can do it. But over time, as it becomes more numb, they can't have an orgasm. Mm -hmm. Is this something you've seen? Yes. So I, I think there's a couple things to draw out of that. Number one, I think it would be important to figure out the age of this person. Um, they're young. They're a college they're student. Oh, okay. Because um, I was going to say just on that on that note, um, as men get older, this the their sens the sensitivity in their penis tends to decrease. Um, their ejaculatory time, their their time to ejaculation also tends to increase. So um, I got I have plenty of older men who um, who report it takes them a lot longer and they require a lot more stimulation um, to ejaculate and orgasm. But if we're if we're talking about a um, college age student, you know, um, without any kind of history of trauma or um, low back pathology that could perhaps interfere with the nerve input from the spinal cord. Um, I've seen a lot of patients develop these report, or um, I'm sorry, report these issues with sensitivity. And sometimes it's actually like behavioral. Um, and this is, I don't know if you can speak to this, but I've referred patients who have trouble ejaculating um, because of reported decreased sensitivity. And a lot of times it can be related to how they're masturbating um, and or um, how that is different from when they're have, having sex with a partner. Because as I'm sure you know, men generally grip their penis a lot harder when they're masturbating and move their hand a lot quicker than can be reproduced with a partner. Um, and so I have a, a, a handful of patients who um, I've referred to um, therapists and sex therapists to work on, on what they can do um, through masturbation to kind of set them up for success during sex. Right. Yeah, actually, I received that question this morning from someone who said that they can orgasm, you know, masturbating with porn, and they can't orgasm with a partner. And they said, is porn the problem? And I said, I doubt it's porn. It's mm -hmm. probably how you grip your penis, right? Mm -hmm. Like you hold on to that thing for dear life, like it's the only one you got, which is true. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you know, there are really simple physical approaches, like for example, so this person was having intercourse with a vagina, reach down while you're having that penile vaginal intercourse and grab hold of the base, right? Stroke mm -hmm. that lower third with your hand or have your partner do it or wear a, a cock ring that's a little bit tighter. You can slide along with some cock rings with lube, a right. little bit of vibration. And then of course, as you said, 
training yourself to orgasm in different ways. Because if your body only knows how to respond to one type of touch, right. you're creating that association. Um, in terms of this other case, is do some penises experience numbness? And like, is this maybe, can it be related to hormones or medication or stress even? Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, I think all of those are important um, factors to consider. Um, you know, one thing that, that I um, find a lot in my practice is that that young men like this person often get dismissed, right? So let's say he has the courage to bring this up to a provider. They're going to tell, you know, you know, likely would, would that would be met with dismissal and essentially, oh, it's all in your head, you know, just, um, you know, it's, it's your partner, you know, you know, maybe you're bored with this person or whatever. Um, and so we would still kind of go through the same process, right? We would still do um, a hormonal evaluation and consider medications that they may be on or other comorbidities that may be contributing to a decrease in sensitivity. Um, and the truth is, you know, I've, I've found hormonal problems in 20 year olds that one would never expect to find. Um, so, you know, everybody kind of still gets that same workup that I, I don't think age should be a deter deterring factor. That's so important. I mean, talking about people being dismissed, and we talk about this all the time on the podcast, you know, women being dismissed for their concerns, people of color being dismissed for their symptoms, especially related to pain. But we don't tend to talk about young men being yeah. dismissed as, well, you are supposed to be the pinnacle of health. Therefore, I'm going to look at you through that one lens and perhaps not consider all of these other factors. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that happens um, a lot, a lot to young men. Uh, such an important point that we have to kind of be our own advocates and find healthcare practitioners who have a background in sexual health, right? As you know, you may be willing to talk about sex and really open to talking about it. Like even the fact that you're talking about different, you know, needs of erections for anal versus vaginal versus your own hand. So many physicians, MDs shy away from that because, you know, obviously you don't exist in in a vacuum, you exist in this erotophobic world, and it's hard to find comprehensive training in sexual health. I don't imagine you received it all in med school. You've had to do your own learning. <laughs> yeah, abso absolutely. Yeah, I um, I wouldn't even say I, I received. Um, I, I didn't receive much of it even in, in residency training. I mean, I, I trained in urology, and you know, the focus in urology is you know general urological health, cancer a little bit of pediatrics, incontinence, and that's about it. They, they then, you know, they leave a little bit for sexual health. Um, and so I had to do a fellowship specifically in an, a, uh, an area called sexual medicine to kind of learn all of this stuff. But I, I think I think you're absolutely right. I mean, um, I can speak to the American, um, you know, medical education system. And I know for in, in our system here, um, there is absolutely not an emphasis put on sexual health. And that's just like man, woman, sexual health. So when you're talking about anybody who identifies as queer or a person of color or, you know, any of these sort of um, minority groups, like we get nothing, no exposure to any of that. So you really mm -hmm. do have to kind of continue your education to kind of get that, that, um, that uh, knowledge. Um, and I think, um, you know, I think I'm thankful that patients can now use things like the internet um, to find, you know, providers like yourself and, and, and myself because they, they are being their own advocates and it's it's born out of necessity because a lot of them either don't feel comfortable talking to a, a doctor or they already have and have been dismissed. And so, you know, they still this problem isn't going away and now they're like, what do I do? I've got to find some help. So. Right. And doing a fellowship in sexual medicine, uh, was there training in how to address trans patients needs? 
Um, to, a, to a certain degree, yeah. I mean, um, I did so sexual medicine um, when I did it was like five years ago, and it was the focus was a lot on um, specifically male and female sexual health. Um, you know, I'm a, a gay man myself, so I have a, a particular interest in LGBTQ um, topics within sexual health. So I definitely like made that effort to. Um, to learn more about sort of queer sexual health and, you know, um, tra for transgender people, um, gender non-conforming, non-binary people. Um, and so, and a lot of that is just like learning language and being comfortable with talking about um, types of sexual behavior and, you know, uh, genitalia and not necessarily associating that with a specific gender or a specific sexual orientation. Um, but that's, you know, that, that does require to a certain degree, a re-education, because it's it's really not something that we are taught in, in medical education. So, And even if you are taught it, we live in a world that is, you know, all cis normative, right. all heteronormative. So it's a lot of it's a lot of unpacking professionally and personally. Yeah. Um, so I have a few more questions that I really want to get to, if you don't mind, yeah. because because yeah, you talked about you talked about the fact that uh, with time, people with penises generally take longer to ejaculate. So you know, when you're 16, it's going to be different than when you're 60, and of course, there are exceptions to that. Yeah. Uh, but I am hearing from more young folks with penises who are saying that it's taking them too long to ejaculate. Mm -hmm. So it takes them a while. So we've already talked about the fact that it could be training from gripping yourself, you know, really, really tightly. And there's two ways to kind of deal with that. You can learn to grip yourself more gently, or you can just grip yourself more tightly when you're engaging in partnered sex. Right. Right. Um, for those who take 10, 15, you know, even plus minutes, uh, have you studied delayed ejaculation or do you deal with this in your practice and, and what can they do about it? So um, I would say I would start with the behavioral stuff, right? So I would definitely refer them to a therapist or a sex therapist. Um, there are some medications that we um, do try. Um, you know, they're, they're all off-label. There's no FDA-approved strategy for delayed ejaculation or even premature ejaculation for that matter. So um, there's, there's a lot more data looking at uh, medical therapy for premature ejaculation and very little for delayed ejaculation. So some things, um, the, the way I was taught to sort of think about it during my sexual medicine fellowship is um, most sexual problems are a balance between excitation and inhibition. So um, using delayed ejaculation as an example, that is something that is overly inhibitory, right? So you wanna do something that is excitatory to counterbalance that. So one of the things that we use, um, first off, you know, you wanna make sure that their erections are normal. Um, if they're not, you could consider using something like a PDE5 inhibitor. Um, examples of that would be like Viagra, Cialis, those kinds of pills that improve blood flow because maybe it's a blood flow issue. A lot of men have delayed ejaculation because their erections aren't normal. So you can kind of treat both conditions with one medication um, if that's the case. Um, other men have totally normal erect erectile function and still have delayed ejaculation. And so we consider other strategies that are excitatory, right? So there are, there are medicines that work on excitatory, excitatory neurotransmitters, primarily norepinephrine and dopamine. Um, and so we use dopamine agonists um, sometimes um, to increase um, circulating levels of dopamine in the brain. Um, one is, is co that's commonly used is a medication called Welbutrin um, that is an antidepressant, but we use it off-label because we know that its effect on dopamine levels. Um, and then a medicine that a lot of people are probably familiar with is, is Adderall, which um, 
increases uh, it, it's a uh, increases norepinephrine. So it is an excitatory um, treatment, and you know these can all be um, very hit or miss because, as I mentioned, there's not a lot of data looking at the, the the use of these medications. So it is a little bit of trial and error. And I and I and I explain that to patients at the beginning. I say if you're willing to try different things, we can we have lots of options, but there's no one size fits all. There's not a medicine that's absolutely always going to work for everybody um, because our brains are all different. So um, as long as they're sort of willing to go down, um, down that journey with me, then then I try, you know, whatever I can to, to try to help them. And I'm really thankful that you include, you know, the discussions of the relational or psychological or lifestyle elements. Like we think about We've seen this all the time. Something happens one time that's unfavorable, whether it's the loss of an erection or premature ejaculation or delayed ejaculation or no orgasm. And then we get it in our heads that this is going to happen again. And then we, you know, create that feedback loop via anxiety, right, and the performance pressure and... And then, of course, the body works against itself because we get stressed out and we can no longer enact that relaxation response. So this this all makes sense. I imagine you also run into people taking medication that can inhibit orgasm. I'm wondering if you can speak to that. Absolutely. Um, so I would say probably the biggest one would be antidepressants. So um, SSRIs, which are probably the most prescribed type of antidepressant, um, are notorious for causing delayed ejaculation. They can sometimes interfere with... Um, uh, erectile function as well, and can can oh. e- even mute orgasm sometimes. Like the 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 if you're able to ejaculate, the the sensation, the pleasurable sensation that you get from orgasm can sometimes sometimes be muted. So, um, oh. that is a yeah, that's definitely something uh, a battle that we're constantly fighting. Um, there are some you know uh, antidepressants that we would consider you know sex friendly. Um, that are newer. So Wellbutrin, I already mentioned, is one of them. So if, if patients, I usually give my patients a list of sex-friendly um, antidepressants to discuss with their prescribing doctor um, to either transition them onto those or to um, discuss possibly adding them to their regimen to see if we can counteract the, um, the effects of their SSRI. Um, so, and again, it, that can be thought of as sort of an uh, excitatory, in- inhibitory kind of thing as well, because SSRIs result in an increase in serotonin, and serotonin is generally thought to be an inhibitory um, neurotransmitter from a sexual perspective. So, um, we actually use SSRIs off-label for premature ejaculation, which is an overly excitatory state that we want to inhibit a little. So, we put people on that, and that's while that's not FDA approved, it's it's been well studied, um, um, and is one of the uh, first line therapies for um, premature ejaculation. This all makes sense. And do you ever deal with pain during or after ejaculation? Oh, all the time. I don't know how this happened, but somehow I've become like the pelvic pain specialist in Los Angeles. Um, yeah. So um, many times when men experience. Um, um, pain after ejaculation. Actually, and this, the same could be true for, for women um, uh, who experience pain with orgasm. Um, if you think about the act of ejaculation and orgasm, it, in, it involves a, um, um, a, a dramatic increase in tension in our pelvic floor muscles, right? That's part of the, the pleasure that we get from the orgasm, generally speaking, is that you build up all this muscle tension and then there's a release. Well, you know, for a number of reasons, men and women... Um, can walk around with a lot of tension in their pelvis, maybe because they're, you know, 
doing squats all the time or really hardcore Pilates or they got into a car accident or they had a baby, you know, vaginally. Um, lots of different things that we do in our daily life can affect um, the function of our pelvic floor muscles. And so patients who start out um, with dysfunction in that area can often, as the tension in their, their pelvis increases as they approach orgasm, can actually cross a threshold where um, it, it actually impinges on nerves and can cause pain. And it's sort of like if you, it, it's sort of like getting a Charlie horse in your pelvis, right? Like when you get a really, when that calf muscle is so tight that even after it releases, it's painful. Like it's just, you still feel the pain there, even though the, the knot has kind of worn out. Um, that's kind of what happens. And so um, a lot of patients who we see who have um, pain with ejaculation or orgasm, um, one of the first things I do is refer them to pelvic floor physical therapy to have an evaluation because a lot of times they have dysfunction there that needs to be addressed. Yes, and we work often with pelvic floor therapists here. We recently had UC Logic on the program, mm -hmm. who's also a sex counselor, and uh, happy down there. And uh, Brandon, you were really drawn in by the discussions around pelvic floor. It's it's your turn to go to a pelvic floor therapist. Yeah, apparently I'm up. I volunteered myself to go <laughs> and the report back because, you know, my, my first impression is that is if I go to see a pelvic floor therapist, they're going to insert their fingers into yes. my rectum and start poking around. And that just doesn't sound like something I want to do the very first time I see somebody. But uh, Well, you better, you better buy them flowers afterward. At least. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So before. I, before, yeah, yeah, before. You know, it was, it was something that I, it made me less inclined to want to go. But after the conversation that we had on this podcast, I, I felt comfortable that I would go and, and see how how it felt. So the people are waiting, but I think you might be post-COVID. I might have He's to be post-COVID. Yeah, I'm not. That's probably, that's probably wise. I would say, listen, I think that everybody at some point in their life, earlier rather than later, should go to a therapist and should go to a, a, a pelvic floor physical therapist. Um, and both can be painful experiences, but both are often very, very, very helpful. Um, so, you know, I, I generally shy away from telling my my uh, male patients that um, they're going to uh, have a finger inserted into their rectum because I think 50% of them wouldn't go um, if I did tell them that. And it's hard to convince them to go even if they do know that. So um, I kind of, um, I have a, a handful of physical therapists that I refer to in LA that I absolutely love. Um, and they're really great with patients and they, you know, they end up developing these incredibly intimate relationships. Um, that, you know, start out a little awkward. And then, you know, by the time I see them and they've gone to six treatments, they, they're talking about their dogs and what their kids do after school, you know, while having someone's finger up their butt. So, you know, it's, it's, it may not be the most enjoyable experience at the beginning, but once people see the, um, the benefits, they're just, you know, they, they're, they keep that appointment more than they do to see me sometimes. Yeah, like a Brazilian wax, only even better, <laughs> right? Exactly. No, really, I mean, to, to have that capacity, these pelvic floor therapists who are so skilled, to have that capacity to be talking about your pets or your animals while you're, you know, in this most, while this person is feeling so physically vulnerable, mm -hmm. there's such amazing skill. I, I hold them in with such reverence. So I'm, I'm glad that... I'm glad that you brought them up. And it, what it reminds us is that it takes a village, right? It's a community. You know, no single person has all of the answers. And I think we need that reminder 
kind of in an Instagram world or in a world of gurus where everybody's sharing their knowledge and insights, but we can't just draw from one source. So Absolutely. I... I've learned so much from you. I've just been taking notes here. Um, certainly, I, another time I want to talk a little bit more about muted orgasms, but I love that you're working with the framework of the SES and SIS, the sexual excitation excitation system. It's always so hard to say. And yeah. the sexual inhibition system. And I, I think that's a great model for people to walk away with, to think about, okay, so what are all the things that could potentially excite me? Mm-hmm. Anything from something physical to something mental to something emotional to something spiritual, uh, anything at all, right? Is it that I, you know, I'm excited when I know my house is clean or I'm excited when you call me a dirty whore in my ear at the <laughs> dinner table? Like what, whatever it may be, what are all the things that potentially excite you? And then, of course, what are the, all the things that inhibit us? And right. how can we make how can we make lifestyle, behavioral, attitudinal, and relational changes to address these? So I'm, I'm so happy to hear because I don't think I've heard another MD talking about that model. So, mm-hmm. and again, I know that comes from your your background in sexual health. So uh, what where can people learn more about you? I know you write your blog on astroglide.com and I'll be sharing those links. Uh, I know that you're also on Twitter and Instagram and you're, you have a website as well. Yeah, so my website's just um, joshuagonzalezmd.com. Um, Perfect. Yeah, so um, we have lots of information. Every blog that I write for Astroglide ends up going on the website, and I, you know, I do blogs and other media content um, as often as I can. So all that goes up on the website, and you know, I, I focus. We, we focused a lot, I think, today on on the male side of things, um, but mm-hmm. I do I do um, treat all types of people. Um, with sexual dysfunction. So there's a lot of information on the website. Um, that's a good place to start. And then, as you mentioned, I'm active on Twitter and Instagram um, that they can link to from the website. Awesome. And yeah, you know what? I had uh, questions about menopause because I know you also do a lot of work with people who are post-menopause. Yes. So we'll save that for another time yeah, because we ran out of time. But really appreciate you being here today, folks. Make sure you follow along on Facebook and Instagram, Joshua Gonzalez, MD. We will link to him and on Twitter, Sex Med LA. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, my pleasure. Good to see you. You too. Take care. How's your uh, penis gobbler feeling? I wish I had an... Uh, I'm feeling spunky funky. Did you ever name your penis? No, I didn't. Really? Did any partner ever name your penis that you know not, of? Not to, not to my knowledge. What about your balls? <laughs> no. No Frankenbeans? That's an awesome name. Frankenbeans. That, that's what you'd name it? Yeah, yeah. If I could get a wiener dog or two wiener dogs, I'd name them Frankenbeans. I think if I had to name it, it would be Frank and Beans. Not like my balls would be Frank and Beans. Are you talking about the dog or your penis now? <laughs> <laughs> oh no, you're talking about your penis. So we went from Dr. Josh teaching us all these important things. <laughs> yeah, to naming your penis. So I like the way just it keeping goes. Keeping it highbrow on my part on my end. I like the way it goes. Thanks for the discussion, babe. No problem. Thank you. Thank you to Cleavana for their ongoing support. Reminder that Cleavana enhances arousal and the potential for orgasm at the cellular level by stimulating the clitoris to do more of what it naturally does so it can address vaginal dryness painful sex and of course increase your capacity to have an orgasm check them out at cleovana.com wherever you're at i hope you're having a great one a great week ahead and we'll be back next week with a brand new episode You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Improve your sex life. Improve your life.